And thanks, Don. Ezekiel chapter 18 tonight, friends. And just by way of reminder, if, uh, if you have trouble finding the book of Ezekiel, uh, just open up to the middle of your Bible. You'll most likely hit Psalms or Isaiah and just flip to the right past, you know, uh, Proverbs and uh, Jeremiah and, uh, and you'll eventually hit Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18. Now, quick review while you find your place. Ezekiel is prophesying, he is preaching, if you will, he is pastoring uh, the captives in Babylon, okay, the captives in Babylon, Um, swift, ready for some swift Old Testament timeline to get us up to this point, God creates the world, (laughs) all right? Uh, mankind, that his thoughts are only evil all the time, right? So God brings the flood. Eventually, um, God also disperses the people and confuses their language. Ultimately, Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, which is uh, essentially Babylon. Ancient, ancient, ancient Babylon. It's a place where Abraham is called out from. He would go and live in the land of Canaan or the land of Israel. He and his children until a a really bad famine that saw Abraham's grandson Jacob, also named Israel, take his 75-person clan, children, grandchildren, and house servants and whatnot, down to Egypt where Joseph was already there reunited as a family, and they would live in Egypt for about 420 years, a large majority of which they would become a threat to the Egyptian empire because they were good at having babies, and so they were a threat to them. They were mistreated, enslaved, and so after 400 years of enslavement, the Lord sent Moses to go and release the people from Pharaoh's grasp, and through many signs and wonders, the people of Israel, two million or so strong with all their flocks and all their herds and their carts and their clothing, were escorted out the front door of the Egyptian empire, only to be chased by the, by the Egyptian army, to be drowned in the parted Red Sea, to then scurry along the bank of the Red Sea until, down to the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, where they would live for a year and build the tabernacle. They would get the instructions for the tabernacle and build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings and all of its bits and parts and candlesticks and whatnot. Once the worship of God was established and his presence was firmly in their midst and they were organized by clan, they set out on a journey back to the promised land where Abraham lived for a few years. Uh, However, along the way, and when it was time to take the land, the people doubted, and so for 40 years, that generation would wander the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula, and the Lord provided for them, but that generation would die off because of their lack of faith. The next generation, led by Joshua, would fully take the land of Israel, and Joshua would die uh, as, a, as a conquering hero, having escorted the people of Israel across the Jordan River and into the land of promise. Joshua is, of course, a messianic figure. Just as Joshua led the people across the rivers of the Jordan into the land of promise, so too Yeshua, Jesus, escorts us through the waters of baptism and into the land of promise, spiritually speaking, right? For 400 years, the people of Israel had no king, though they dwelled in the land. They went through cycles of rebellion and obedience. Um, Their their rebellion would give rise to God's discipline through invasion, through neighboring peoples. And a champion would rise up, Gideon, Samson, Deborah. And that champion would lead the people to uh, repent of their sin, 
resist the invaders, and they would usher in a temporary season of peace. That season of peace, though, uh, would be reminiscent of that old saying. That old saying says, hard times make strong men, strong men make for good times, good times make for weak men, weak men make for hard times, and the cycle repeats, right? It's essentially what the people of Israel lived through for about 400 years through the period called the Judges. Eventually, this didn't work. In those days, there was no king in the land of Israel, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which is to say a sense of subjective right and wrong. This led to the prophet Samuel anointing Saul from the tribe of Benjamin to be the first king over Israel. And for 120 years, Israel was united around the monarchy. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. However, when Solomon died with all of his wealth and all of his wisdom, during this period, this is when the Proverbs would have been written and under David, the Psalms would have been written. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam, um, he did not listen to the wisdom of the older men around him who served in his father's court and instead listened to the young men around him. So there you go, right? Uh, For all of the young men in the room, there's reason why I don't take your advice and instead I take the advice of Stan and Doug and Tom. (laughs) But anyway, because of Rehoboam's foolishness, the kingdom split. Ten tribes that are called the northern kingdom of Israel, they had their own king. They immediately began to practice syncretism, which is to say they worshipped God alongside the worship of idols. They set up alternate places of worship when God said, I will be worshipped here and here alone. And that place that God assigned was Jerusalem. So the ten tribes to the north, called the northern kingdom of Israel, they Uh, mostly had wicked kings. The two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, uh, they had some good kings, but more wicked than good. And so over the next couple of hundred years, um, there was a lot of idolatry and a lot of wickedness, especially in the north. There was some civil war between the north and the south. And eventually, After only a few hundred years after the split of the kingdom, the Assyrian Empire from the north, you might call it northern Mesopotamia, um, invaded uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, destroyed their capital city of Samaria, and some Israelites stayed in the land while others were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. That's 722 B.C., Um, The southern kingdom held out for a few more years, uh, about a few hundred years later, um, before their idolatry and wickedness sort of came to pass and came to bite them. And at that point, the Assyrians had fallen to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah three times. Around 604 BC was when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carted off to Babylon. They would have been castrated, renamed, and re-educated to serve in the court of the king as the wise and sharp young minds from these foreign lands. About uh, 15 years later, uh, 591 BC, was the second invasion of Judah. And at that point, a 25-year-old Ezekiel, along with about 3,000 others, were taken captive and carried off and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. Five years later, Ezekiel would receive this incredible vision at the age of 30, which the age of 30 was when Jesus began his rabbinical ministry. The age of 30 is when a priest would officially begin his ministry. Um, At the age of 30, Ezekiel saw that vision that we read of in chapter 1 of his his prophetic book where he sees the presence of God manifest. And then the Lord begins to speak to him and tell him what he would do. He would first preach to the captives. And so for the first um, seven or so years of Ezekiel's preaching ministry, from age 30 to 37, Ezekiel was 
preaching to the captives in Babylon. He was preaching against their false notions that the Lord was gonna rescue them. He's saying, no, the Lord's not gonna rescue you. The Lord put you here. This is the Lord's doing. He would preach against their their wrong assumptions that the Egyptians would come to their aid. We've hired the Egyptians to come and fight for us. They'll save us and we'll get to go back home. Ezekiel said, no, they won't. And so when the Egyptians did try to fight for Israel, not only did they fail, but they also retreated and Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and put down any potential future rebellions. And that is the year that we might know of, 586 BC. There's two dates that, that, are, that stand out in the, the captivities. It's 722, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom of, of Israel. 586 is the fall of Jerusalem in the south to the Babylonians. But that's the third wave of invasions. And so that's just quick, okay? That's just quick history brings us up to the moment. And so there we are. Here is Ezekiel in Babylon, having seen this grand vision and been given this this task by the Lord to speak his words and only his words, but all of his words to the people of Israel. It was a... A a fearful thing, I think, to be a prophet of the Lord. A terrifying role to play. For many reasons. Number one, um, in the initiation of the job, there was like a, a great threat on Ezekiel's life. You will say only what I tell you to say. You'll do only what I tell you to do. And you won't embellish, you won't add In fact, Moses added to what the Lord told him to say. And as a result of, regardless of 80 years of faithful ministry, no, 40 years of faithful ministry, 40 plus years, he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. You can see it, but you can't go in. Why? Because he added this much to what the Lord told him to say. So the the role of the prophet was important. You'll say exactly, no more, no less, of what I tell you to say. Well, that message would often be an unpopular one. Ezekiel wasn't telling the captives, don't worry, everything's gonna be great. Just sow your seed and tithe to this little temple we've got made up here in captivity and you watch as the blessings come into your bank account. Right? Don't worry, the Egyptians are coming to help us. Just hold on, it'll be a little bit longer. Don't worry, the Lord is gonna get you out of here. These heathens that, that took us captive, God's going to punish them. No, his message would have been unpopular. It's because of your sin that we're here. It's because of the hand of the Lord that we're here. The Lord will not rescue you out of here. The Lord has put you here. The Egyptians will not help you. The only thing that will help you is for you to confess your sin and repent. That's not a popular message. So Ezekiel then would eventually, after the fall of Jerusalem and after the people began to listen because he was predicting accurately what would happen, afterward, Ezekiel would proclaim the end of their captivity. This will not go on forever. He would proclaim the restoration of the people to the land of Israel, but Ezekiel would not live to see it. He would die in captivity after losing his wife and not being allowed to mourn her, then he would also die in captivity. Well, so this week, as we regather our minds around the time frame, the people, the places, the imagery that we stepped away from during the semester break, I, I want to circle back around this evening to a portion we skipped early in the semester. At that time, we were trying to keep this to a 12-week overview, and Uh, And so I wasn't able to teach this portion. I had to just summarize it and move on, and I was disappointed. Uh, But now that we've extended that, this study to to stretch over two semesters, I thought that this might be a helpful way to to just subtly, slowly get our minds back uh, into the realm and the world 
of the man Ezekiel, the captives in Babylon, and what was going on at the time. And so if you have your Bible there open to chapter 18, let's read just a few verses by way of introduction. Would you stand with me? Verse 1, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now I want to just summarize this next bit. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not, verse 6, eat upon the mountains, which is funny because of what we're talking about on Sunday mornings, if he doesn't eat on the mountains, what happens on the mountains? Anybody? What happens on the mountains? Idolatry, idol worship. And what happens as part of idol worship? A feast. Right? They would offer meat to this idol, and then they would eat it. And then part of the worship is the eating of the meat. And then later on, Paul says, some people eat meat, some people don't eat meat. But that's what's happening on the mountains or the high places. Now just skip down to um, the second half of verse 10. Or some, I'm sorry, it's going to have a verse 9. The last ver- phrase He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, verse 5, he, verse 9, shall surely live, declares the Lord. Well, just that little bit by way of introduction. Lord, we ask that you would help us and teach us. Uh, Bring to mind things that have leaked out. Uh, Give us clarity of thought, humility of heart, and um, and a a burning desire uh, to obey and apply your scriptures as they prick us and touch us and stir us. Make us like you as we learn who you are through your revealed word. Help us accordingly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. <laughs> it's a weird a weird phrase, right? Well, we're going to spend our time this evening in this chapter, and so if you're taking notes, we're going to first examine, number one, an old saying. That's what a proverb is. It's just a saying. Um, The book of Proverbs has 31 chapters, but there are 300 sayings in it. Some of them are one verse. Some of them are six verses. Some of them are whole chapters, right? But they're sayings. It's a proverb, And so uh, a a saying that seemed to have inherent wisdom, like the other Proverbs, was spreading around in and among the people of Israel. And that saying was, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. God asks, what do you mean when you say that? What are you saying What do you mean? This was such a popular saying in the days of Ezekiel that Jeremiah mentions it in his book of prophecy and in Lamentations. Jeremiah just precedes Ezekiel even as their lifespans overlap a little bit. His ministry anticipates some of what Ezekiel lived through even as their, again, their timelines overlap a little. Jeremiah called the weeping prophet foretold of Israel's pending judgment. What Ezekiel lived through, Jeremiah was telling was coming for decades. Because of their idolatry and wickedness, this was his message. And instead of repenting of their sin, the people of Israel ridiculed and attacked him. His own family turned against him and plotted to kill him. He was whipped and bound by the high priest, and even the kings of Israel threatened and imprisoned him. He was treated better by foreign kings than he was by his own countrymen. Why? Because his message was judgment 
is coming because of your idolatry and wickedness. The point is this. In response to the honest proclamation of the word of God, the people responded in anger and resistance. And as they did, Jeremiah would then prophesy. As they're rejecting his message, Jeremiah then says, when the judgment of the Lord comes, the people will begin to say, our fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They will say this, okay? Fast forward, Babylonian invasion, second round of Babylonian invasion, and guess what? This phrase was spread all around the land. And in Ezekiel's day, the saying was so common that all he needed to do was say, what is it, what is this phrase about that we're all saying? God asks through Ezekiel, what is this thing you say? Well, let's talk about what it means. It was obviously common. What does it mean? The Jews in Ezekiel's time, they were complaining that God dealt harshly with them punishing them for the sins of their forefathers. It's as simple as that. That's what it means. Our fathers ate the sour grapes, but it's our teeth that are tingling. You know that terrible sensation when you eat unripe fruit? And the way that just like, like a, a, a persimmon, an unripe persimmon, it like turns your mouth inside out? That's the idea. Their teeth are set on edge. So they eat the unripe fruit, and, but yet it's our teeth that are set on edge. The point was, they sinned, and we're being punished for it. They believed themselves not to be worthy of the invasions, of the death, the pestilence that fell on them. I think at one point we talked about this, when, when Jerusalem finally fell, that last invasion of Babylon, 586, a third of the people were killed in battle. A third were killed from disease, which happens during a long siege. Malnourishment, disease, right, Tr- spreads inside of a walled city without good ventilation, right? A third killed in battle, a third killed by pestilence, and then the other third were carried off into captivity. Pretty bad deal. Pretty raw deal. And they said, it was our grandparents who sinned against the Lord, and yet we are the ones who are punished for it. It was a form of protest, this saying. It was an accusation of injustice on God's part. It was an assertion of innocence. And it was a charge that the guilty ones, their forefathers, got off scot-free for their spiritual crimes against God's law. The proverb is an assumption. Three observations about this proverb. It is an assumption that God's justice works like karma. You, you put out the good vibes, you get the good vibes back, right? You put out the goods, what, what you sow, you shall reap. And this is, a, this is in, in, in the mind of the one saying this proverb, God's justice works inside this box. You, what you sow, you reap, period karma. You put out the good, you get back good. You put out bad, you get back bad. But, as we learn through Job, while that is a general principle woven into the fabric of creation, God's justice is not bound to it. Job did not get what he had earned. He got what God prescribed for him for his purposes. And it was when Job began to accuse God of injustice that then God said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? How dare you? See, it was the only place where Job really got askew was when he finally said, you know what? I'm getting a raw deal here, God. God's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know what I'm up to. My version, God says, my version of perfect justice is greater than this box that they often today call karma. It's more sophisticated than that. It's more eternal than that. It's wiser than that. It's grander than that. 
Job's one example. Jeremiah was another. Jeremiah did nothing but obey. He was obedient. He was faithful, and yet he was scorned and threatened. And Jeremiah had the kind of ministry that most church growth books would define as a failure. Zero converts. Zero church buildings built. Right? Zero movements led. Half the books at the Christian bookstore that talk about church growth would call Jeremiah a failure. Not directly, but by the principles that they convey and their definition of success, Jeremiah was another failure. Or God's justice is more sophisticated than an overly simplistic version. It's wiser than the principle that is reminiscent of something like karma. This proverb is reflective, number two, of a heart, not number two in the notes. Note, second observation about this proverb. The first one is an assumption about God's justice. The second one is reflective, that is reflective of a heart that is eager to pass the buck. Our fathers ate the grapes, and it's our mouth that's turned inside out. This is the oldest trick in the book, isn't it? Adam, Eve, where are you guys? Well, we heard you coming, and so we hid ourselves because we realized we were naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? It wasn't me. It was the woman. It wasn't me. It was the serpent, right? It's the oldest trick in the book. It's not my fault. I'm innocent. It's somebody else. In this case, it wasn't me. It was my forefathers in modern culture it's not my fault it's the system it's racism it's the patriarchy it's the fundamental religious institutions and so on it's we've been doing this forever it wasn't me it was the woman the one who practices this as justin taylor puts it he they they think quote those on whom the judgment was falling could reasonably shrug off any sense of sin and accuse God of injustice. Why? Because it wasn't me, it was them. So the judgment is falling on you and say, well, this isn't my fault, you're unjust. You're an unjust God. Guzik notes the popular proverb both expressed and promoted a popular idea that God was unfair. Third thing, this proverb was popular Yet popular doesn't mean true. The saying was so pervasive that the preacher Ezekiel could simply refer to it in a crowd of Hebrews. God says, why are you guys saying this? And then the crowd would just follow him on his train of thought. We notice that Ezekiel doesn't begin his sermon by explaining something. I've heard this. Apparently it means this. God says, stop saying it. No, no. The saying, this proverb, would be so common to them as something like Disney World is to us today. I don't need to explain what Disney World is in a sermon. I just refer to Disney World, right? And so too it is with this proverb. It was popular. Everyone was saying it. Everyone was believing it. And yet, look, popular doesn't mean true. There are many popular ideas floating around in our culture today. But the Christian must take care that only that which is proven in the text of Scripture is reliably true. Things that are popular today but aren't true. A boy cannot become a girl, though this is a popular proverb in our culture today. Two women or two men who participate in a wedding ceremony are not married. Marriage is a Christian institution defined by God. Ceremonies can call themselves weddings, but that doesn't make them so. Yet it's national law. Popular doesn't make it true. It was popular in the days of Ezekiel to believe that the sons were being punished for the sins of the fathers. They ate the grapes, but it is we who have the sour taste in our mouths. God says, no longer will this be said among you because it's false. Popular doesn't mean it's true. And so here was this old saying. God is unfair. We are innocent God's justice is broken. So that's the old saying. Let's consider number two, a a thorough rebuttal. A thorough rebuttal. 
What do you mean, verse two, by re- repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is right, skip ahead to verse nine, he is, he shall surely live, declares the Lord. Verse 10, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest, and takes a profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. This is the son, a wicked son, of a righteous man. Now suppose, verse 14, this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. So now we have a wicked father. The son sees and does not do likewise. Verse 15, he does not eat on the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for the father, verse 18, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, verse 19, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. No, so this is a thorough rebuttal to this pervasive proverb that says we're living through the consequences of our father's actions. God is punishing us unjustly for the actions of our fathers. All right, there's three angles to this described, uh, this principle described in chapter 18. And the first one is, if you will, like the bottom of a What's it, what is it, a triangle that has the, the same sides, the same length on all three sides? Isosceles, or what is it? It is isosceles. Okay, good. I am the principal of a homeschool, after all. I should know my triangles. So if you imagine like an isosceles triangle, there's three sides to that triangle. There's three angles to this principle. And the first is the bottom, the foundation, verse 5. Verse 4 and 5, I should say. Behold, all sons are mine, the soul of the father as well, the soul of the son, the soul whose sins shall die. And then in the verse five, if a man is righteous and does what is right, verse nine, he will live. That's the principle. Now, you listen to that and you think, okay, so someone can be righteous? No, this isn't meant to undermine the rest of scripture, which claims Romans chapter three, no one loves God, no one does good, no one seeks God, right? No one loves him, no one, no one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Or Isaiah 64, 6, our righteousness, our very best is but filthy rags, okay? Rather, this is meant as a rebuttal to the claim that God is unjust in his dealings with mankind. Romans 14, 2, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So this is a general principle that God lays down, like, okay? You do good, you die. Sorry, you do good, You live, you do evil, you die. That's the general principle. However, the rebuttal then continues, saying, as it comes to generations, you can have a a, a faithful or a righteous generation born to a wicked generation, and you can have a wicked generation born to a faithful or righteous generation. But the two are not dependent upon each other. As J. Vernon McGee says it, each tub has got to stand on its own two feet or its own feet, right? Imagine a clawfoot bathtub. Every tub's got to stand on its own feet. J. Vernon McGee, I wish I could say it like him. Every tub. 
If you've never listened to any recordings of J. Vernon McGee, you need to just take, uh, find some old recordings and listen to the man preach. It's a, it's a great blessing, but it's also, he's got a great accent. Every tub's got a sound on its own. T- I can't even do it. No, God thoroughly rebuts this. He lays out a principle, and then he gives examples of the other two sides of the triangle. Verses 10 through 13 speak to sinful children born to righteous parents. Verses 14 through 18 speak of righteous children born to sinful parents. So you have a principle, and then you have the two examples. It's a thorough rebuttal to an old saying. Now beyond that, if you're taking notes, let's consider thirdly what I can, I can only think to describe as, as a promise and a prescription. A promise and a prescription. Verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done he shall live. That's a great promise. It's a great promise. If you turn away from the sin you have committed, turn to a new life to do what is right, what is just, that none of the transgressions you committed prior will be remembered or counted against you. What a great promise. And then you have what I consider to be a prescription in verse 23. A prescription to understand God's heart. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. And not rather look that he should turn from his way and live? What's the prescription? Turn. Repent. You are never too far gone. You are never too wicked. There is never too much water under the bridge. One of my, one of my dearest and oldest friends led her aging father to the Lord on his deathbed. He was a hard man, greedy, a workaholic, abandoned his family, wildly successful, immensely wealthy. And on his deathbed, he, he just, he poured out his heart in, in apology to his family and he confessed that you know, he was wrong and that he's sinned and that he needs Jesus and he needs to be saved. This after decades and decades of my friend praying for her father. And she said, she said when he finally passed away, his, the disease, I can't remember what it was, I don't know if it was Parkinson's, I can't remember what it was, but, but it made it to where he, could, he couldn't open his eyes. He, he would try to talk to you with, through just like little slits in his eyes, but he couldn't control the, the muscles in his face to even open his eyes anymore for weeks leading up to his death. But on the day that he died, his eyes shot wide open. And he's like he was looking around the room. My friend tells me, I, I, I don't know, but I can only imagine. It was like the angels were coming to get him and to take him home. And he was, and the next moment, he was gone. There's never too much water under the bridge. There's never too much sin in the past. If you turn from your way, you see, it's a simple prescription and a glorious promise. Interestingly, I overheard a portion of a conversation that was recorded between Dennis Prager, who is a a genius of a conservative Jew, uh, uh, between him and Jordan Peterson, who is an interesting genius conservative Canadian uh, philosophy professor. And... Dennis Prager, the Jew, was talking about this principle that God punishes the wicked and that this is a good thing. To which Peterson rebuts and he says, but, but wouldn't you want, wouldn't you prefer they turn from their error instead? 
And, and laughing, Prager responds, he says, that's such a Christian question. Such a Christian way to think. You want people to turn from their sin and escape the wrath to come. Prager was saying, the wrath of God falling on the wicked is a good thing. Peterson says, but wouldn't you rather them turn? That's such a Christian way to think. No, friends. That's a Jewish way to think. Look, here it is in Dennis Prager's Old Testament, you see. If you would turn. You see, the blindness of the Jew. They can't, they don't see the heart of God. Have I any pleasure, verse 23, in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away from his way and live. Now, it's a glorious promise. It's a fantastically simple prescription, but it's also basic Christianity. Why would we take the time to unpack this? I want to tell you why. We live in a day and age when blaming our misfortunes on others is practically a religion. It might be the fastest growing greatest religion in the world today. I adhere to the religion of blaming my misfortunes on others and not as a product of my choices. It's the, it's got to be the most pervasive, fastest growing worldview in our world today. This is at the heart of what's called critical theory, which has given rise to critical race theory. Essentially, quote, I'm a violent, insubordinate criminal because of the system, not because I make choices with my own independent agency. Right? This is the idea. And you can fill in those examples with anything. Beyond that, it is tempting for man to feel sorry for ourselves if we grow up in a tough environment. If our parents are alcoholics or drug addicts, it's easier to say, I was born into this environment. I'm also born with this proclivity, which is to say almost like an instinctual leaning. It's tempting and it's easier to say, because of my environment. One of the, one of the things I heard when I was about 16, a wise man, he said, look, we're all products of our environment. Just look, look at what you believe, look at what you champion, look at what you value, and then look at your friend down the street. What, how did he grow up? What does he champion? What does he value? And it's true. I like to shoot guns, right? I like to work hard. What is my dad? He's just, he's just a big old West Virginia redneck, right? He taught me to shoot guns, work hard. <laughs> you see? We're products of our environment. And yet, at the same time, that does not take into account the glorious grace of God who says, regardless of your environment, regardless of your inclinations, regardless of your proclivities, regardless of the the sinful, horrendous, perhaps, environment of your family, all things can be made new in Christ. LGBTQIA plus advocates say that Christians who uphold the teaching of the Bible concerning human sexuality, that we are mean, hateful, and we just won't admit that some people are born with these leanings. You know what, friends? The truth is some people are born with those leanings. They are born with natural inclinations towards certain types of sin, certain types of sexual sin even. But God deals with people on the basis of their actions, not their proclivities, and in Christ, all things are possible. All things are made new. So that's a few of the reasons why we would take time to unpack this. Finally, the last one is related to parents and children. The parent who tries to teach their children the right way, has them in church, disciplines and corrects them, and yet they grow up and they go their own way. They leave the faith. They walk in darkness. These parents might spend a lifetime blaming themselves for how their children have turned out. And on some level, yes, moms and dads, we are responsible for training up our children, right? I mean, God gave us the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall teach these things to your children when you're lying down and when you're waking up and when you're walking on the road and when you're sitting in the house. Teach, teach, teach. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates so that your children see and know who God is. God would not give the prescription, right, if it didn't have some effect. So yes, we have a duty. But on another level, 
God's sovereignty extends to every man the agency of free will. They will stand before God on their own two feet, guilty, or they will stand before God covered by the blood of Christ. There is no third option. God is just. For every generation, God is just. Now, I think this is important to emphasize this because as parents, we are called to faithfulness, not results. Faithfulness, not results. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, moreover, it is required of stewards, that's managers, that they be found faithful. Okay? You are managers of your children. They are temporarily in your care. Be a faithful manager of their heart and of their mind. That means protect them and shield them from that which would harm them both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And it means pour into them that which will give them life. That is the word of God. Be a faithful manager. You can't make their decisions for them, but you can decide how you manage them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome you. This is a common, this is a well-known verse, right? No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You're called to faithfulness. God will always give a way of escape. You're not called to perfection. Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law, right? And, the very next verse, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. That's holistic, That means every sinful passion, every evil desire, every proclivity, tendency, natural urge that is sinful and self-gratifying is nailed to the cross with our Savior. It has been defeated by his death and has proven to be so by his resurrection. There is no natural tendency, product of your environment, proclivity or, or inborn leaning that is not crucified at the cross with Christ. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us not limit the grace of our Lord. And so parents, I would say to you, to the extent that you failed in the Shema, you know, either in the raising of your grown children or in the years that you have behind you with your children who are still at home, to the extent that you have failed to obey that passage from Deuteronomy, ask the Lord to for, for forgiveness. All right, confess to your kids that you've, you've missed it. Ask them for their forgiveness. But also recognize that you could be as perfect as a parent can be, but your performance cannot save your child's soul. Your diligence cannot stir their unredeemed hearts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. The principle is true from Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way they should go, and in the end they will not depart from it. But that's not a magic trick. It's not a magic trick. Each generation has to decide for themselves to pick up their cross, to be crucified with Christ, and to follow him. You can't decide that for your children. You are responsible to be faithful to the very best of your ability at the time. Which means, Christian, if you're, if you're a growing believer, raising children, that means faithfulness today will look different than faithfulness a year from now, at least it ought to. But you can't beat yourself up for what faithfulness looks like today. Okay, that's what you're called to. You're called to the faithfulness to the best of your ability today. And God's grace is big enough to cover the rest. So that's parents. Children, do not be deceived in thinking that your parents' diligence endows you with a level of spiritual maturity or assurance. We have some great parents in our fellowship who are raising godly children, and I'm proud of them, and I'm blessed by our young people. 
I'm blessed by their purity and their joy and their unity and their kindness, even your knowledge of the word. But young people, your parents' faithfulness will not save you. You will appear before the judge on your own feet, either blanketed by the grace of Jesus or guilty where you stand. That will be determined upon your own confession, not your parents. Your own genuine repentance, not your parents. Your own personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not your parents. The phrase I heard growing up didn't make much sense, but it is as simple as it is true. Your parents' faith must become your own. It has to be yours. You will not be saved because your dad is the pastor. You will not be saved because your mom serves in the kids' ministry. You will not be saved because you sing in the choir. You will not be saved because you sat in a pew. Humble yourself before God. Tremble in fear at the thought of playing church and devote your life to his service. Cast off youthful lusts. Beg him for forgiveness. Your parents' faithfulness will not save you. It's a good word for us today that we find from an ancient book in Ezekiel. God is just and he deals with each generation on their own. Let us both be thankful for his fairness and also be thankful that God's fairness is greater than a rigid version of what you put out is what you get. Because in the end, grace is so much better. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for our time in Ezekiel. Uh, thank you for this, uh, this ancient uh, book of prophecy that is so rich, it's so full, that we can spend week after week examining it and yet come back to just a handful of verses to unearth treasures that challenge us, that comfort us, and that clearly define the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your word. Go before us, keep us, encourage us, convict us, mold us and shape us, and use us for the sake of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good night, friends. See you Sunday.